Welcome to the latest episode of Wait What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. The podcast where we take a sometimes irreverent, sometimes cynical, very rarely a serious look at the sports business. I'm your co-host, Tim McGee. And I'm David Paro. So, David, what's on your mind this week? Well, like it seems we always have, there's some interesting uh, stories going on in the sports business. And what was at least looking like or acted upon as a gentlemanly disagreement between the PGA Tour and um, the Saudi-backed Live Golf rival series is pretty much grown into a full-fledged and increasingly public spat. Back uh, some time ago, March 29th, we had uh, tour executive Norb Gambuza on, and he gave a great explanation of the fact that, you know, there have always been attempts at looking at other things um, and that the tour, as it usually does, tends to stay pretty quiet about it. Their focus was going to be on continuing to operate, listen to players, um, but uh, quietly try to get everybody uh, into the camp of staying with the tour and not looking at this. Well, this week, the tour has officially denied uh, what has been reported up to 70 releases from golfers wishing to participate in the um, uh, June 9th through 11th inaugural event of this series uh, in London at the Centurion Golf Club. It's every expectation that the DP World Tour, which is a European tour, um, sponsor is DP World, uh, is going to do the same. Uh, it looks like Jay Monahan and the tour are very linked uh, and joined at the hip with the DP World Tour, uh, and that they're going to deny requests as well. So the question is going to be who is going to play. Phil Mickelson is going to play. Uh, we know that there are some other players, not necessarily the top players, but other players are going to show up at this event. And Greg Norman is Greg Norman serving as the, the head of this and the face of this tour has gone on a full offensive to basically threaten um, the tour. And I think then the European tour uh, that they are not, you know, acting in the, in the best faith for their players. Uh, This has just gotten a little crazy. And I guess with, with Norman as the face and Mickelson, so uh, much involved in this that I guess we knew it was going to get to this point, but we're now at that inflection point where the tour uh, and expected that the DP world tour will deny these waivers for people to be released from the tour to play in this event, which they normally would do for international event. Yeah. Let's, let's not, uh, let's not sugarcoat it, right? This is greenwashing, or I think as you refer to it as sport washing, right? Saudi Arabia through their public investment fund has made a $2 billion investment in live golf. Um, You know, this is the same government that, actively participated in the killing of a, of a journalist, right? And so um, regardless of what you think about being able to play in a competing entity, um, you know, you've got a government that is funding a golf property um, that participated in murder. And, uh, you know, Mickelson has made some intemperate comments and, uh, you know, you know, you just filled me in on some of the comments that Greg Norman made as well. Yeah, I think we, with some of the press that's come out, and, and, I, and I will say this, the public relations arm of this entity uh, has been strong and they've been solid and they've been consistent. All of the golfers that are considering playing, Lee Westwood being one of them, uh, has used the the language of, well, we just golfers, we're trying to make a living. Um, Norman did get 
asked the question um, about the actions of the Saudi government, particularly the, the murder that you referenced. And he made what I thought was an unbelievably bad comment. Maybe they didn't prep him for that one as well. Um, and I'm not going to quote this directly, so don't quote me on that. But it was basically in reference to that people make mistakes and we have to then learn from them. <laughs> Murder doesn't tend to be a mistake that you that you learn from, especially when you got away with it um, and suffered no consequence for it, but rather uh, just kind of you know grew out of it, continued to spend. So yeah, uh, the, the Saudis are among the best, if not the best, uh, as far as sport washing. Uh, meaning backing sports endeavors basically to push other things aside, throw money at things that people need to or want to participate in. Uh, and that's what it is looking like this. And, and, and Greg Norman will continue to have to answer those questions, as will Mickelson. I will say this about Mickelson, and, and we talked about it when Norb was on the show. I'm not sure we've ever seen a player, an athlete, go from fairly universally admired and and enjoyed and respected. I mean, there were people that weren't necessarily fans to to the villain. Sure, he still has fans. He can be very entertaining. Um, but uh, but his comments, you know, that that he even said, well, yeah, they're killers, but it was kind of their killers, but I'm not sure there's a good, you know, next thing to say after but when the first thing you say yeah. is they're killers. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's an interest. It's a, uh, I mean, listen, this is, this has gotten as, as, as much as the tour has done. And I think they've done a pretty good job of keeping their top guys in line and, you know, possibly bringing them in a little more, um, the, the push, uh, and the, and the notoriety of Greg Norman as the face of this, uh, has, you know, made some, has made some impact. And I think, when that event kicks off in London on June 9th, um, we're going to have to see who's there. Now, keep in mind that for this first season, I think it's eight events in this first season, um, of the first four of them, or first five of them, um, three are in the United States. They're in Portland. Uh, they're in Boston. Uh, actually, four of them, four of the first five events are in the United States, scheduled yeah. to be in the United States. Portland, New Jersey. Boston and and Rich Harvest Farms in Chicago, which is actually in Aurora, which is further away from Chicago than Rockford, our favorite city on this show. So I'm not sure, or that's maybe it's not it's not further, but it's it's certainly really far away. I don't do consider it a yeah. suburb. Do you happen to know which course it's uh, being played at? Yeah, it's at Rich, Rich Harvest. Oh, in Jersey, it is at the uh, at uh, not, National in Bedminster. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Why am I not surprised? By right, and it's closing at Doral. Trump Doral, I guess it's now called. Yeah, good. Couldn't um, get on the circuit for the majors right. uh, or for a tour event. So, uh, you know, well, let's not turn it too political. Um, you know, but at the same time, Lionel Messi signed a deal with uh, Saudi Tourism um, Authority to become a brand ambassador for Saudi Tourism. Now, I don't know if he'll feel the same backlash that Mickelson did or has. Um, but he was called upon by several human rights groups not to take this gig. It's not like he needs the money. Um, so, I, you know, I, I wonder if, if his, uh, you know, if his reputation takes, takes a hit from this. Well, is that a sign that he is going to leave the uh, Qatar sports investment back PSG and, and go where he's rumored to come and come to MLS and play for David Beckham's uh, Inter-Miami? 
Um, uh, I believe he's taking an ownership stake in, in that right, club. Yeah. So right. I don't know if you can play as an owner. I don't know what the league rules are. Um, interesting, you know, we, we are, we've sort of segued into soccer. Uh, congratulations to the National Women's Soccer League Players Association signed their first ever collective bargaining agreement. Um, kudos to them. Um, interesting, what I took from that uh, was that the women are going to be able to control their biometric data. Um, which may have implications for future uh, CBA discussions going forward. It may be used as a, uh, a sort of a, a, a you know, model for that. Listen, I think there's so many exciting things going on in the area of women's sports, and definitely congrats to um, to uh, Jessica Berman and the NWSL. I think uh, we're hearing some good news out of that. Uh, WNBA season has uh, has launched. We are quickly approaching the 50th anniversary of Title IX. We want to, on this show, continue uh, to talk about big news coming out of, uh, of women's sports. And there was another big story on that front. You know, Disney's coming out strong talking about uh, uh, not only sports, of course, with ESPN, but about the importance uh, that women's sports are going to play uh, in their portfolio moving forward. So um, I think there's some good negotiating power uh, now on both from a sponsorship standpoint and a media rights standpoint. Uh, with uh, various women's sports, and uh, and and we will continue to talk about those on those news items on this show. Yeah, the, the sports are going to have to continue to deliver. They're going to have to con- continue to deliver high quality play. They're going to have to continue to deliver fans. They're going to have to continue to deliver uh, engagement opportunities for sponsors. And uh, you know, all all trends seem to indicate that they're doing that now. So it's great to see. We may have finally reached a tipping point where women's sports will get more than 6% of the media coverage, which they have uh, gotten over the last couple of years. Right. Well, that's been a big piece of it, right? I mean, I think those that have argued for a little more equality uh, in support, both from sponsors and uh, in the media, have said that if you even increased incrementally coverage, of sports, talking about um, talking about WNBA, for instance, on uh, on Sports Center, uh, that the, the the interest will grow, and those things go hand in hand. I think that is yet to be seen, but it certainly seems as though ESPN, the you know the uh, the worldwide leader, um, is committed to uh, to looking at things that way and bringing coverage of women's sports uh, into their normal coverage a little more. But you're right; I mean, they will have to show that they can wait. What? Them in- yeah, <laughs> that, that you're right. I, yeah, no, I've got my kids home and my wife, so I don't hear that phrase very often. Oh, Tim, that's what this <laughs> weekly show is all about, is making <laughs> us feel validating a Tim about our opinions. Um, no, I'm I sorry. You. So you I were saying you that? No, not at all. Um, but but this is this is a great example of where where brands can help drive things because brands have always had the capability of building a sport even one that has a maybe a smaller following you know we talk about the big leagues a lot uh, major league baseball nfl nhl nba nascar um but you know one of these axioms that we've mentioned several times on this this idea of where there is demand there is opportunity and that goes for um brands looking for you know niches in their sports and and while you know, 10 years down the road, we may not be talking about any of these women's sports in any way as a niche, but currently from a consumption standpoint, they certainly are smaller 
Um, but the idea of being able to build those with the fan base and helping build the fan base is where there's opportunity. And it's and honestly, um, you know, brands have, you know, much greener pastures and much uh, emptier, um, you know, canvases to, to build their programs on where some of the landscape of sponsorship in, in some of the uh, larger men's side of the sports is pretty crowded. Yeah, as, as you know, uh, but many of our listeners may not, um, there are people in this world who call me professor and do so unironically and without sarcasm. Um, and one of the things that I have taught as part of my marketing course for several years is that uh, media does not drive, media coverage does not drive viewership and, and avidity and things like that. You have to have the fan base in order to warrant that sort of media coverage, whether it's print, radio, cable, what have you. I think we're seeing that change because the women have not been playing on a level field with, with the men, no pun intended, for, for many years. And I think the media outlets like ESPN um, have got to say, you know, maybe we need to give them a little boost, right, and then see if they can make it on their own. Um, my sense is they can. Uh, my sense is that you'll see more deals um, like ESPN is doing with women's sports. And you'll see more success of women's sports, whether it's, you know, the PHF or the WNBA or the NWSL, or I'm, I'm particularly fascinated by what the guys at Athletes Unlimited are doing. Um, they seem to have really struck on a pretty cool business model for women's sports. Well, in addition to the um, collective bargaining agreement that you mentioned for uh, NWSL is there is uh, increased chatter about investment from MLS owners um, into the league and, and building on it and, and creating some uh, um, kind of joint ownership situation uh, similar to what you have in, in various other sports, certainly had it in the WNBA, certainly have it in European soccer. Um, so, uh, so yeah, some, uh, some very interesting times for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to, I, I want to go back and, and this isn't a trivia question because I don't think there is necessarily a right answer, but if, Messi, who is, I think, 34 years old, arguably the GOAT. Some people feel he's the best player uh, to ever play the game. Um, I think that's a, a, he's certainly up there. Uh, and is, if he were to come to MLS, what does that mean for MLS? And is it, um, is it good for MLS that we, that, that the American League tends to get these great global players when they're when they're on their downslide i think we have you know beckham we have uh, uh Henri, we have rooney uh we have zlatan uh you the know, list goes on kaka yeah, yeah you know tim cahill um you know these guys who wore many you know earned many caps for their national teams played at the highest level in european and elsewhere i i think it sells tickets I, I don't necessarily think it's good for the long-term growth of the league. What I have always said is MLS will have truly made it when those players are coming to MLS in the ascendancy of their career and not during the declining years in their career. Now, would I go see, pay to see Messi pay? Absolutely. I was doing work for Red Bulls, gosh, probably about almost 10 years ago now. Um, and Argentina was uh, was playing a friendly at MetLife Stadium, and um, and they practiced at Red Bull Arena, and they put in 
I want to say 10,000 people in the stands to watch an Argentine practice. So uh, I don't think, and I think his popularity here in the States in particular has only grown in that time. So I think from a commercial standpoint, I think it helps the league tremendously from a strategic and a sort of long-term viability. uh, I don't think it hurts, but I don't necessarily know how much it helps. Right. I I would tend to agree. I I think as long as there continues to be improvement in the play incrementally uh, and these things happen, that it's not necessarily a backslide. It's not as much of a sign of desperation. Uh, as much as it is, hey, we have a chance to really showcase uh, these these players and and bring Messi over to the states. Uh, it it you know, and from a marketing standpoint, a focus standpoint, I think it would be big as Beckham was when he joined the when he joined the Galaxy. Um, but yeah, you, no, it's, yeah, it's it's just one other point I, w- I would say is I you know I was working doing work for Red Bulls at that point, and Henri was playing, and here's a guy who could not you know break the starting eleven with a premier league club at that point and was by far the best player on the pitch every virtually every match right that he played in right yeah. um and i i you know be, and as great as Henri was um you know to your point messi is in the in the discussion if not at the top of the list of greatest of all time right so I, I have a very strong sense that even at 34 or 35, if he joins MLS, he will be in a similar position, right? Right. Well, speaking of MLS, uh, you know, we we haven't mentioned this yet, but it, you know, because when people think Champions League, they tend to think of um, UEFA Champions League, which the final, by the way, will be um, on May 28th, and the and Liverpool will be uh, facing off against uh, Real Madrid. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. And that's 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 the one people talk about. But an MLS team won CONCACAF Champions League uh, just a few weeks ago. And and that's pretty cool. It's the Sounders beat Liga uh, MLX uh, MX club, excuse me, Pumas three uh, nil. So it was, you know, to win the, the CONCACAF Champions League. And Tim, as you know, CONCACAF is my favorite sports acronym. So I, I, I just can't say it enough. Really? I would have pegged you as a cannonball guy. No, no, no. That one's too hard to get to. Um, so, I, you know, listen, congrats to the to the Sounders, and it does elevate the game. The, the path for MLS has been long and arduous, but, you know, the signs definitely are always ticking up. Uh, I think it's time to take a break, and uh, we'll get back with our guest. It's time for our guest. Well, we are back for a very special um, guest segment today. And Tim, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit giddy because um, our guest As today, <laughs> our guest today is Donald Dell, one of the actual creators of the sports marketing industry, meaning that Tim and I, with along with countless others, uh, owe him our gratitude. Donald founded the pioneering sport management and marketing firm ProServe in 1970 and built it into a global powerhouse, repping top athletes in literally every sport, including famously Arthur Ashe and Michael Jordan, producing and broadcasting major events around the world. Now, I'm fortunate that I was able to work with and for Donald during the years I ran ProServe's and then SFX Sports Consulting Division out of Washington, D.C., uh, of course, and not surprisingly, Donald isn't someone that just sits back. He's still active as the president of media, tennis, and events at Sport 5, which was formerly Lagadere, uh, and still teaches a sport business uh, law class at UVA where he earned his law degree. So we're, we're just particularly appreciated 
of Donald taking time with us today. And I certainly should stop my yakking and say, welcome, Donald Dell, to the Wait What Show. Well, thanks, David and Tim. This will be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. So let's start by kind of looking at the, the industry fairly broadly and say, what would you say are the biggest differences that you see uh, in the sports marketing industry since you founded ProServe? Uh, and what would you say has actually remained constant? Well, I think a couple of things. One, the, um, the, the lucrative uh, exploitation of business and sponsorship and endorsements is probably 10 times greater than I ever envisioned back in 1970, 75, when we started the ProServe marketing. We, we were a law firm for a couple of years and we used the marketing arm of, to call it ProServe because you couldn't recruit, you couldn't solicit, you couldn't advertise under the canons of ethics when we were a law firm. So we had to do both. But I think the biggest change is really, besides the enormity of the money, is that when, when Mark McCormick of IMG and myself at ProServe, we were the, really the first two. He was about six or eight years ahead of me, mainly in golf. And I started in tennis. And we stayed in our own channels for a couple of years. And then every both of us crossed over into each other and did a lot of sports. But I think the difference is that we, we did, you know, one shop uh, stop uh, mark marketing. I mean, we did everything. We did from appearances to endorsements to investments to uh, you name it, clinics, we, we did naming rights, we did media television, we did events, we did television of events. And so we did across the board, uh, both Mark and IMG and us and ProServe, we were very competitive. And we really covered the whole waterfront of sports marketing. What's changed to me dramatically is that it's become very uh, synchronized now to where it, it's very sp split up. There, You know, there's one for sports marketing, there may be for uh, speaking engagements. Another one will be for negotiating. Another will be for, if you can imagine, planning, uh, marketing, and, uh, and and servicing your your for your career. I mean, everything has been specialized now. It's a highly specialized industry, and so where we may have been doing it across the board, there are now six or eight different divisions or groupings that are doing what we did across the board. So the thing is just spread like crazy. For example. When we started, there were probably two or three or four major advertising firms that we dealt with. Today, there's 200. I mean, it's all over the place, and it's much more global. And because most of sport is global, if, if you thought about it for a moment, sport is like religion. It cuts across all uh, all global lines. In other words, there's no, there's no territorial limits on sports, just like there isn't on religion or music. Those three basic areas cut across all lines. And so... As, as the sports marketing area, an era rather, got bigger and bigger and bigger, it got spread out more and more and highly more specialized. So today, if you looked around and saw what we did, let's take an example. We did five or six areas. There are 30, there are 30 people out there doing them today in, different, in those same number of areas. It's just been grown uh, exponentially, uh, tremendously in the last, I would say, the last 25, 30 years. So now you have all kinds of specialty firms. You know, you'll have somebody that does – just after, you know, just market planning for their uh, their wills and trusts in estate. That's a whole business now uh, that we used to do some house in house. There'll be other times there'll be a certain kind of consulting uh, division. There'll be a, a different television division. There'll be an advertising division. And they, they're all, in many cases, their own companies. They're not in one company like we were doing five or six things. They're one company doing that thing to, over and over and over and, and, and to their specialty. And it's, it's really... Uh, 
broadened beyond any any dream I had of it. I never thought it would get as big as it's gotten, <laughs> and it continues to grow. So some of our listeners may not realize that you were a world-class tennis player in your own right. You played in, in a, a few Davis Cups. You were a Davis Cup captain. Talk a little bit about making the transition from a player to somebody representing players, among them, you know, David uh, mentioned earlier, Arthur Ashe, Dan Smith, some of the biggest names in, in tennis history. Well, really, Tim, it was a, a good luck of timing for me. I, I, I played and retired from the tour in 66, and I went to work for a law firm in uh, Washington called Hogan and Hartson, where I was very happy in 66 and 67. And then in 68, I was named the Davis Cup captain. But in that particular year, the sport of tennis, 1968, went open, which meant pros and amateurs could play for prize money. So suddenly, I was the Davis Cup captain with a 10-man squad picking four of the best 10 players to play all over the world, and the sport went open where it was a professional sport. So I ran the Davis Cup team. We ran, we won six different matches in 68. We're undefeated and won the, won the Davis Cup for America. And then we defended the Davis Cup because in those days, under the rules of the Davis Cup, uh, the challenge round, there was a challenge round. Everybody played out to, to play the, the defending champion, which we were in 69. And we played Nastasi and Tyriak in from Romania in 69 and beat them uh, five nothing. And so I was undefeated as the captain. And then I retired in January of 70 and set up my own law firm in Washington. The law office of Donald Dell became Dell and Craigill to start with. Then we moved into ProServe and it, it, everything changed quickly because we could then be aggressive. And we had to compete with McCormick, who was running a marketing arm called IMG. And so the, we became very strong competitors, but very good friends. I was good friends with Mark. We did a lot of things together quietly and privately. Uh, but our two staffs, you know, when we were when I was going strong, ProServe had about 300 employees and 16 offices around the world. So it was a truly global sport. On the other hand, IMG had a thousand employees and about 26 offices around the world. Why do I know that? Is because I was competing against them every every day all over the world. And I'd always say, well, they're so big. They're too huge. You don't want that. You want a smaller group. <laughs> and he, he was a heck of a competitor, and they did a great job. And they're still very viable today, IMG, really. They've been bought by Endeavor, uh, who's now gone public. I don't know how their stock's doing. Hey, but full disclosure for you, Tim is Tim spent some time at IMG as well. Oh, I didn't know that. Out. I didn't know that. Yeah, did two stints there, as a matter of fact, and was very fortunate to have met and got to know Mr. McCormick for a little bit before he he passed. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was an incredible experience. Well, he was the pathfinder. I, I like to say truthfully, he was the first one there. I followed him in a lot of ways, but the two of us ended up uh, competing all over the world for a period of about ten years before everybody else got into the business. We had a head start which helped us. And David was working with us for a while and consulting in our division. So we, we've had a fun time. The sports world has exploded and uh, it's been very competitive, but it's been challenging. So as we do with our guests, we interrupt their great uh, uh, answers that they're given on the question. So um, if we, if we want to go back to kind of moving into how you first were contacted by, uh, by Ash and Smith uh, in particular, and then we'll follow up a little bit on that. Sure. Well, it was interesting. Uh, I, when I when I retired from the Davis Cup in uh, December of, 19, of 1969, I was driving down the east side, driving New York in a cab with Arthur Ashe. And uh, 
I had just taken him for the third time to meet with Mark McCormick for breakfast. McCormick <laughs> always liked to meet at like, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, seven thirty, and we had just had a morning breakfast. And we were, after the breakfast, we were driving, and Arthur said to me, "How many more times are you going to do this?" And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "You keep taking me to McCormick, and, and I, I don't understand. I've met him now three times with you, and I don't feel as comfortable with him." And I said, "Well, I think he's going to make you the most money, Arthur. I really, you should be with him." In '68, he had the Olympic Committee. He was doing the television. He had John Claude Killey. He had a few guys in golf named Palmer Player and Nicholas, pretty damn strong. I said, that's who you should be with. You could start a tennis division with him, and uh, I think you'd be very well off there. And he said, wait a minute. He said, why don't you do it? And I said, why don't I do what? And he said, why don't you manage me and, and play some McCormick? And I said, no, no, I'm going back to Washington. I want to be in a, a trial lawyer in a law firm there. I want to be the next Clarence Darrow in Washington. I like trial work. He said, well, you know, Donald, you ought to think about it because if you would stop and do it, Stan would join us and we could start a business together with Stan and myself. And that really, you know, was the, the gem, gem that got me started thinking about it. And that's uh, I went back to the Hogan and Hartson. I talked to them and the senior partner was very excited. But I said, you know, we'll give you tax people. We'll give you accountants. We'll give you the whole fifth floor. And I said to him, and I said, what would be the name of the company? He said, Hogan and Hartson. But this is a great idea. You ought to, you'll be in one of the first person to be in managing athletes, particularly tennis. I was the first one ever to manage a tennis player professionally anywhere in the world. And he said, we'd love to do it. And I thought about it for three or four weeks. And then I said to Lester Cohen, the managing partner, I said, Lester, I really want to do it myself. I'll start a new thing called Law Office of Donald Dell. And I had one secretary, David, uh, Karen Salter, you might remember her, and uh, myself. And we did it. But we had couple of great clients in Arthur and Sam. <laughs> yeah. I still remember walking in the first time I walked in the office, uh, you had already moved into the district from, uh, um, from Roslyn, I believe. And uh, when I started there and uh, you're met with those pictures of Stan and, and Arthur, which just amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, not, not to, uh, Arthur is a special person, obviously to you. And I think to anyone that's a sports fan uh, and a fan of humans, right. Sure. Um, you were extremely close to him. Uh, what, you know, how would you characterize what his legacy is and what should particularly young people um, know about Arthur Ashe? You know, you know, David, it's a great question because uh, UCLA has just started a, uh, a a class out there called the History of Arthur Ashe. It's a it's a three hour course at UCLA. Uh, they named the medical building after him. His name wow. is on top of the building when you drive into the campus. That's the first thing you see is this huge, uh, tall medical hospital building with the name Arthur Ashe on the side of the building. So I, I think uh, what I remember mo mostly about Arthur was, first of all, he's very, very intelligent. He was a speed reader. He had a photographic memory. His IQ was off the wall. But that was all a given. The, the greatness of Arthur to me, that I think, is his humanity in the sense that he really cared about other people. Uh, he was not a very selfish thinking, uh, you know, a lot of athletes are, are very concerned about money. He was not, I mean, that's fine. I'm, I'm all in favor of, you know, athletes being in favor of money. That's the profession. Uh, but in Arthur's case, he always thought Arthur, Arthur always thought that money was maybe the second or third issue behind it. He really cared about people. He was uh, sometimes misunderstood because he was somewhat introverted in a way. I mean, certain people would, uh, misunderstand that he was not so outspoken. And he and I had a certain uh, way of talking to each other, a certain language. When we get into certain meetings, 
he was bombarded by every imaginable group, mostly uh, African-American. You can imagine when he won Wimbledon in 75, beating Connors in four sets. And we were just, you know, had tremendous offers coming in, but everybody was, you know, wanted to do something with Arthur. And when, when we'd go into a meeting, he came, he was on the Davis cup team assigned to me from West point. He was a second Lieutenant in the army. And we had an understanding that what, if we were in a meeting and I thought things were going badly or it was a waste of time, I would suddenly say to him, Hey, Arthur, uh, I said, Lieutenant, I would call him Lieutenant. And whenever I used the word Lieutenant, he knew and understood that was a meeting that we were going to try to end quickly and move on to something else. And so we had our own way of chatting with each other with different signals uh, because uh, he was so popular, to be honest. That's a great story. Let's talk about deals and deal making in general. There's nobody in this business who's done more or bigger deals than than you have. What what do you think is the key to a, a successful deal, right? Whether it's a sponsorship, whether it's a media deal, whether it's an endorsement deal. What are the key components of success or something like that? I think there's two right away very quickly. First of all, you got to be a good listener. The great people that market and sell are listeners. They're good listeners. You don't come out and try to sell, sell, sell. You want to listen to what the other side wants to do and what, what are they interested in? What are they looking for out of a relationship? So listening is a very simple thing to say, but it's very hard to do sometimes. And then I think secondly, it's very simple. It's people skills. How do you relate and get along with people? You know, most people like to do business with people they like. That's not always the case, but it, you know, it's, it's like, for example, if you can buy insurance from 15 different people, but you generally want to buy something like insurance for somebody that you like and want to work with. And that's the same thing in making deals with endorsements or sponsorship or uh, any kind of ex- experience like that. You want people that you feel you can relate to and get along with. I mean, certain people you knew that Stan Smith was going to get along with with everybody because he's a very personal, outgoing type person. Arthur was really more quiet, more selective. And as I say, some people viewed him as introverted. I never did, but many did. And so you you try to pair up people with groups that, uh, that could relate well to your clients. But listening is really important. And people say it, but they don't do it. Uh, the great marketers all listen first, and then they then they listen to. Then once they learn what you're interested in, what you really want, then they try to match up what they're selling or what their clients want with what you've told them you want. They want, and I think that's awfully important in making, particularly. And the other thing is, an important deal is never made on the telephone or you know or over the television. It's got to be made in person. A, a, an important deal, if it's important to you and important to them. It's got to be done in person. I'm very strongly in favor of that. So, Donald, you built ProServe into a global sports powerhouse, as we've already discussed. What organizational lessons, both good and bad, um, can you share about building a company like that? The biggest lesson I learned, actually, after I I sold the company and look back on it, you know, I made a lot of mistakes when I was the chairman and founder. You get to the point, everyone's, you know, you think, God, everyone wants to talk to you and you can solve all the problems. You can do all the different deals. And what, what happens is you don't delegate. You really need to delegate and get good people in different divisional heads that you can trust and work with. And in my case, I felt because I had founded it and started it too much. As, a, as I look back on it, David, I, I think one of my biggest mistakes was twofold. One, I, I didn't delegate well. And secondly, I never had a great, strong, independent CFO 
I had a comptroller who was a good guy, a nice guy, but we needed a very strong, tough CFO. And I never had that. I had very good people, very good sellers, very ambitious uh, people. Uh, in some cases, people call them tiger sharks. And then some of them were. And that's the good and the bad. But I didn't manage and delegate very well in retrospect. I, by the way, I just want to interject. One of the things I've always appreciated about the discussions you and I had since I um, uh, left ProServe um, in the SFX Clear Channel time uh, is every, cha- every time we've had an opportunity to speak, and I feel lucky that it's been pretty often, uh, you've, you've always shared very honestly things like that. And uh, I'm just telling you, it's, it's rare and it's appreciated. Great. Well, it was the truth. <laughs> Simple. <Amen. laughs> we, uh, we talked a little bit about ING uh, earlier, and they were in the, in the news recently because one of their top players, Naomi Osaka, um, has decided to leave with her agent and start her own sports marketing agency. Um, not unprecedented, but certainly not very common. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see it as the beginning of a trend or is she such a unique player and personality that it's sort of a one-off and, and what advice would you, would you give her as somebody who, uh, represented players like her? Well, it's, it's ironic that you asked that question, Tim, because the person she left with is a fellow named Stuart Duguid, and he worked at ProServe for me for about 10 years. And I know him very, very well. He's British. He had, he, would been, he had been a solicitor in Britain before he came to America, and he always wanted desperately to get into sports. And he worked with us in Washington, David, uh, when I had John Tobias there. And, uh, you know, we had a bunch of group of young guys. And Stuart was – I actually had Stuart as my assistant for about four years. He's very, very intelligent. He writes beautifully. He's a great writer. And he went to IMG uh, when, when uh, Lagardier came in and, and sort of fouled up the tennis division. When they let John Tobias go, that was the downfall of our tennis division, in my judgment. Uh, but anyway, he ended up with IMG, and he had a, he had a great client. They handed him Osaka, and she became a world-class player. And as you na- m- mentioned, they just left to start their own company together. I think uh, Stewart is going to find out very quickly it's tough to compete against the big giants out there, the CAAs, the IMGs, the Octagons. Those are the big three right now. Mm-hmm. And she will do very well on her own, but it's, he's got to recruit other people. And, and if they're I'm making this up, I don't know their arrangement, but let's suppose they're somehow partners, 50-50 or 60-40 or 70-30, whatever the percentages are. He and she have to recruit other talent. And that's not going to be so easy. Uh, she is a, a very good player, but I think she's been very had some mental health problems the last year or so. And you don't get the feeling that she's really uh, that stable right now. When you watch her play sometimes, she's tremendously talented. And then suddenly she'll go off and won't play very well for a couple of days. She loses in the tournament. And the next tournament, she plays great. And the third tournament, she plays terribly, loses the second round. So I think Stewart's got his work cut out for him. It's not going to be an easy road just because she's making a lot of money, which she is, because the the endorsements for a Japanese player in Japan are staggering. They're just far greater than uh, in America. The Japanese really pay, I'd say, three times bigger dollars for the same endorsement in Japan. They've never had such a a world-class player, particularly a woman player, that Osaka suddenly merged to become. And uh, 
So that's gotten them off to a very big start. But I think Stewart's going to find it's going to be very hard to uh, recruit because let's say, for example, pick a girl, Sally Jones. I'm just making up a name. And she's the 17-year-old superstar coming up out of one of these academies in America. And you're out recruiting to her, recruiting her parents. And they're going to say, well, how much time are you going to give Sally Jones? I mean, you're there working with Osaka every day. She's the queen bee. I mean, are you going to have time for my daughter? Is she, you know, I can hear all the questions that they're going to be asking and they're going to have to come up with a, you know, a simple pattern of, I don't know how they're going to compete against some of these big giants because the big three have lots of dollars to invest in and support and maintain players. And I think they're going to, I think Stewart, who's very capable and he obviously knows what he wants to do when he left. I mean, this is not something unique. Nadal left uh, with his own agent several years ago. Uh, Federer left with a fellow from IMG that, that you know. And so uh, th- this is not unusual, but it's unique. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to really test both of their ability to recruit and attract other young stars. So you're someone that obviously is, stays very much on top of the tennis world uh, from you know long-term involvement of it and still staying involved in, in running um, – uh, tennis events and media for sport five. Unfortunately, the conflict in Eastern Europe continues. Um, Wimbledon not too long ago announced that they were going to ban Russian uh, players and, and players from Belarus yeah. as well. Uh, general thoughts on that. Is it the right tack? Is it a smart tack? Did they have a choice? What? Uh, well, I think it's a terribly, uh, it's, a, it's really a, uh, a controversial decision. And I have very mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, uh, I think it's very unfair to the players. I mean, Medvedev, who's the number one or two play, ranked player, happened to be Russian. He has as much to do with Putin as I do or you do. I mean, he he has nothing to do with that. So in that regard, it's very unfair. Because now you have to understand Wimbledon is keeping out 19 players. It's not just one or two like the Nikki Pillich case in 73 with Wimbledon. This is a, this is a, a massive group of players. So on the But on the other side, to Wimbledon's credit, they're focusing the Ukrainian unfair war uh, on using sport. And that's good and bad. And it focuses it in a way that puts a lot of pressure because in Russia, they're not getting the true story about the Ukrainian war. They're getting a lot of, you know, whatever Putin's putting out in, in, in propaganda. But when they see their players can't compete, like they were kept out of the Italian championships last week and they're kept out of Wimbledon, that gets resonated all throughout Russia. They hear about that. Their players are talking about that. So it sets a, I'll give you an example. Back in the, in the, in the early 70s, apartheid in South Africa was attacked by the use of sport. They had a, a boycott of all the South African players, first in tennis and across in soccer and in foot, soccer football uh, and all the different cricket, all the sports coming out of South Africa for about a year and a half None of their players could compete because of apartheid. That put a tremendous pressure on the government back there to change. Now, I don't think it's the same thing here because Putin is so strong. He's a total dictator. He, I don't think Nevedev not playing Wimbledon is going to shake him up. But I do think it's going to bother a lot of the Russian public. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to see a reaction. So in that regard, I like what the w- Wimbledon has done. It's, it's really a mixed bag. Before we uh, before we came on the air, you talked about heading over to to Paris to Roland Garros. 
What's your thoughts on the upcoming Open? What are you looking for over there? Well, I think, you know, Nadal owns that center court. He's won the tournament 12 times. And and Djokovic is there to prove a point because of Australia. He was riding high. And then he suddenly did everything possible, I think, to hurt his reputation and coming out of Australia. You're not going to win, you know, against the premier of Australia. If he says you can't play, you're not going to play. They'll find a reason not to let you play. And so I thought that was a – a case far lost, but he he's coming back now. He won the Italian Djokovic. If all the players in the world are playing well at the same time, in my judgment, Djokovic is about 20% better than anybody else. He's just the best player, but on that fl- slow clay in Paris against Nadal, uh, if they play in the semis or the finals, that is going to be the, the battle of all time. Now Djokovic beat Nadal last year on that court in five sets. That was a, a big surprise. And that was quite an upset. In fact, it was four sets, excuse me. And uh, I was very surprised to see Djokovic winning that so easily. Uh, but it was a mammoth struggle. And I, I, Nadal will be back with a vengeance. On the other hand, Nadal right now is nursing a foot injury of some kind. I don't know exactly the extent of it. And the way he plays, Nadal is a phenomenal way of playing in, in Paris. He takes a very defensive position and he makes an offensive attack out of a defensive position. You'll see him racing across to hit a backhand, and he'll suddenly hit a winner down the line or cross court off the backhand side that is an offensive weapon. And so he's very hard to play on a certain court. And his best surface is the red clay of Paris. So it will be very interesting to see how he does at Roland Garros. So Madrid is considered a warm-up for Roland Garros. Um, right. And, and Carlos uh, Alcaraz uh, beat both Djokovic and Nadal there. I know I'm impressing you with my tennis no, knowledge, right. by the way. So Are you, you think that – Yeah, I <laughs> – yes, I do. I was talking to you today. I boned up. Um <laughs> Uh, any thoughts? Could this guy be giant slayer again? At, uh, well, yeah, he, won three, he beat three players in a row. Remember, he yeah. you know he beat Djokovic, Nadal, and and Nazarev. I mean, he beat three of the top five players in the world back to back. He's nineteen. You're damn right. He's going to be there. <laughs> I mean, he he's not going to get tired. He's young and strong, and he's going to have no pressure. The pressure is all going to be on the senior players to beat him. So I think he's easily. Uh, probably the best outsider based on his ability. He got to the semis of the U S open last year on a cement court that had a high bounce. And then Madrid is a clay court. There's a lower bounce. Uh, no, he's a tremendous prospect. I, I couldn't believe he could play as well as he did for that many matches. I mean, really what he did, David in, in Madrid was unheard of. Seriously. To beat those Listen, three players. We're, we're going to, um, we normally end our segments with guests by asking them two questions, but we think you've done a great job of covering the first one, which is tell us how you got started in the business. <laughs> so we are going to go to um, the second one, which we think is important from you. Uh, and that is, is, especially looking at young people looking to break into this industry, the sports business today in what it is today. What, what one piece of advice would you like to offer them? First and foremost, I would say be persistent, persistent, persistent. There are a lot of people out there that want to get into sports. You know, we get bombarded by everybody that wants to apply. They they go to college and say, well, I love sports, so I played on a team, and I'd be great in sports marketing. And we get that all the time. But the real real people are the ones that persist and persist. I mean, I'll give you an example. Uh, You know, Teddy Forsman, for example, and he started Forsman Little, 
he told me a story once he wrote out, he, he sent out 103 letters trying to get people in the business. And two of them answered out of the 103 written letters, two people answered him. And one of them was GE. And he ended up forming a relationship and starting a business with GE because that was one of the two people that answered his 103 letters. Now, I, I say this over and over. People don't always believe me. You've got to really work at getting an interview because sports is so popular and we're inundated with people wanting to be in the in the sports business. But I would say to a young kid, you know, if anytime you get an offer to be an intern somewhere, take it, get your foot in the door. Uh, but you have to really work at sending out letters, calling people, using friends to try to get introductions. And if suddenly you get an opening where they'll say, well, why don't you try it for six or nine months as an intern? Say yes, because then you're in you're at least in that business. It's very hard to find out. I think the, the big three have certain uh, intern programs, which you ought to look into. But the, the young startups will only have five or six or eight people in them that's pretty hard to break into those because the economics of it, they're, they're afraid of making a wrong choice when they hire somebody. So it's give or take, but I think you have to be patient and you have to be persistent and really determined because then people know that's what you really want to do. You want to have a passion for what you do if you can. And and that's really David, why you and I are still in this business because we have a passion for it. Well, listen, we appreciate that advice. And I want to, on a personal level, uh, thank you for everything you've meant for this business and the lessons that you've taught me uh, just by being around you. So uh, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and we wish you very safe travels to Paris. Yes, thank well, thank you. you very much. Thanks, Jim and David. It's been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Good luck. Sounds good. Well, I got to tell you, Tim, that was a, that was a special interview. Uh, very appreciative of Donald Dell joining us um, for that chat. Always, uh, always learn something when I talk to him. And uh, so thanks to him. Yeah, um, but this is, yeah, this is the time of show where we uh, try to take a look at uh, what we're going to have our eye on this week. So Tim, what's, uh, what are you focused on? So a couple of things. Uh, first, it wouldn't be an episode where I didn't talk about Cornell lacrosse. <laughs> Shout out to the big red who, Came from a 4 nothing deficit and absolutely crushed the Buckeyes of Ohio State in the uh, the opening round of the NCAA tournament. Congrats. They, thank you. They, coincidentally, they travel now to Columbus, Ohio, uh, to take on uh, the Delaware Blue Hens, who played their way into it. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who was an All-American at Syracuse and uh, won a couple of championships while he was there, and he, he said his – his coach, uh, his coach, when they were playing at uh, the semifinals and the finals at Syracuse, said to him, "Boys, you don't want to be shagging balls during the Final Four, which is what uh, the Ohio State team is going to be doing this weekend." Columbus. <laughs> um, but what else I'm going to be watching? You know, uh, there was over 270 billion dollars lost in the crypto space last week. Popular consensus is it won't have an immediate impact on deals like uh, FTX and, you know, crypto.com's uh, F1 deal and FTX's deal with uh, the arena in Miami, but it'll be something that uh, I think we should keep an eye on um, because you and I have both been around uh, guys who walked into this industry and spent a lot of money and went down in a blaze of Maybe not glory, but blaze of something. 
Yeah, marketing money is not always that easy to come by, right? And uh, they had it. They were flush with money as their valuations were just soaring, and uh, they are in a bit of free fall right now. So uh, I do think that the properties are going to have to be paying attention uh, uh, to these. And and I, I haven't seen any of the insides of these actual deals or those specific deal points to see what would be triggers, but it is absolutely going to be something to watch. Obviously, you know, we've talked about the Preakness ratings being uh, potentially really high uh, because of uh, <laughs> <laughs> Strike Rich's performance uh, at Churchill Downs, but we're not going to have Strike Rich. So that's a bummer. And so I do think it's going to absolutely very negatively impact television ratings. Uh, I mean, substantially uh, for the Preakness. We're also going to have a um, Phil Mickelson list PGA championship at Southern Hills in Tulsa. Uh, I don't know the last time a player that won a major isn't back to defend that title. It is a major and uh, I will probably take a peek here and there. Absolutely. Before we go, I just want to give a shout out to one of our past guests, Steve Laletta, president of 2311 Racing. Um, Kurt Busch driving the 45 car, uh, won this past weekend out in Kansas. So congratulations to uh, Kurt, Steve, and the entire 2311 team. And Michael. Always nice to see our – yeah, Michael, I, did, I didn't want to seem yeah, too Michael's, familiar. Michael's, Michael's one. <laughs> yeah. Michael Coleman. All right. Well, listen, Coleman, that wraps up. Uh, so that concludes another episode of Wait, What? Sports Biz Chat with DP and McGee. And I tell you, this was a very special episode for me. Um, appreciate Donald Dell being involved. And uh, uh, Tim, like I said, you know, he's, a, he's one of the legends of this business. So I think it was pretty special for us to have a chance to chat with him in such depth. Um, and thank you to you, of course, the listeners. Um, we really appreciate you uh, taking a listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or whatever your favorite platform is and uh, uh, following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, it means a lot. So give us your feedback. That's important to us too as we try to improve this show uh, with each week. So until next week, take care and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you.